Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Cricket People podcast. I'm the host of the podcast, Jonathan Northall, and this week's podcast features Alan Butcher and Glenn Pocknell. In previous episodes, we've heard from Ryan Campbell and Paul Nixon, Francis Mackay and Mary Waldron, and last week's episode featured Richard Stemp and Benny Howell. Before we get into this week's episode, I would like to tell you about the people who are supporting this series of podcasts. Serious Cricket are specialists in all things cricket, including personalised teamwear, equipment and coaching. They are one of the biggest personalised teamwear suppliers in the UK, working with over 1,000 clubs. The first interview this week features Alan Butcher. Alan played first-class cricket for Surrey and Glamorgan, and he did win one test cap for England. His playing career spanned 20 years before retiring in 1992. His coaching career included Essex and Surrey, whilst his time as Zimbabwe coach spawned a book. I hope you enjoy the interview. My first question, I want to go back to when you started playing cricket first, and that was actually in Australia. I understand that you lived in Australia for just over five years before your parents moved back to England. I just wondered, did you ever consider what, what your career may have been like if, if the move back to England hadn't happened? Well, yeah, I guess so, from time to time. It, it, it's inevitable, because um, I, I did play for South Australia under-15s in um, an interstate carnival in, and, and was selected for an Australian eleven. after that. Didn't play any matches, it was just a team of the tournament kind of thing. So, uh, you know, you sort of you feel that may have been on a on a pathway, on a ladder, or so to speak. But, you know, my, my, for varying, various reasons, my parents decided they had to come back to England. And um, I've never forgiven them for that, <laughs> incidentally. But, you know, things, but things haven't turned out too badly, to be fair. Yeah, I mean, I did play a little bit of cricket before we went to Australia in 1965, just but just only about three three club games when, uh, for Beckenham under tens or something like that. So um, very very little, although I avidly watched it on TV. What sat in front of the BBC free to air television, mm-hmm. which is where I learned to play the game. Obviously, a big argument here at the moment with um, the lack of it on TV. But that's how I learned to play the game. And then, obviously, that was um, carried on in Australia. Were there any noticeable differences between the game in Australia and England? Obviously, the weather being one of them. But were there any others? Well, I, yeah, I think that it, it was much more... Uh, it seemed much more of a part of the fabric of life Sport in general, I'd say. Uh, we played on, um, at schools, we played on concrete wickets, so there wasn't any you know, problem about um, uh, the quality of pitches that we played on as, as youngsters, but, you know, concrete or some with matting or a rubberized matting called Malfoid or something. So we basically we had good good surfaces to play on. That, that was... Um, that was probably different to a lot of sort of nine, ten, eleven-year-olds' experience at, at school cricket in England. Um, but I think just the, probably just the idea of it being a touch more competitive. Although, as I said, I, I only played, you know, maybe two, three matches, so it wasn't a great deal of experience to base that on. But when you did come back, you finally broke 
in intercounty cricket in 1972. But he started out as a bit of a, a, a bowler, whereas later in your career, obviously, you were, you were known for being a specialised batter. How, how did that happen, that, that, that transition? And was it your idea? Was it a coach's idea? Well, I'd, I'd always regarded myself as an all-rounder. And I had actually, I'd played two matches for Surrey, uh, two Sunday League matches in uh, 1971, opening the bowl. Um, it, it, well, it, it was just that um, at the time there were positions available for bowlers, I think, um, Jeff Arnold was injured. Uh, Bob Willis, who was still at Surrey at that time, although, although left um, shortly afterwards, um, he was injured. So they, they were short of uh, short of new ball bowlers, and so at the age of seventeen, I was given an opportunity. Um, but I always wanted to bat, and so 1974, I think it was, we were the. the Surrey were struggling to find a partner for John Edridge. They tried several people and it wasn't really working. And I just put my hand up because I, 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 I didn't want to bat seven, well, probably eight or nine. And um, knew I could play quick bowling pretty well. And so I uh, put my hand up and said I liked them. And um, there I stayed for most of my career. Was it quite daunting to begin with to be out in the batting with someone of, of the... Um, stature of John Edrich? Uh, I, I can't say I, ever, I found that daunting. Um, one of the things of spending five years growing up in Australia that it had imbued me with a certain amount of self-confidence. So I, I, I can't say that it wasn't... It, I, I didn't find it daunting. I, I backed myself to do it. Um, I can't say, you know, I mean, I, got, I did quite quite well, reasonably well. I didn't tear up any trees, but I did reasonably well to start. We've had a few years where things didn't uh, go quite so well, but, you know, eventually... Um, but he did go quite well. and He did go quite well to the point that you had a call-up for England in 1979 and you played one test match and you played one one one-day international the year after. Your, your time with England, is it Something that you look back on with that you didn't get more of an opportunity, or is it that you were just glad to be able to play for your country? Yeah, that's a difficult one. I probably people maybe uh, say to me, if I say I go to speak at a dinner or something, and people will say I'm an England player, and I probably make the distinction, and I feel like somebody who has played for England rather than an England player. Okay. Um, as in, you know, I'd like to have had the opportunity to play four, five, six times to sort of satisfy myself as to whether, A, I was good enough or not good enough or, or whatever, because, you know, here I, I, I'm sitting in a car at the moment, by the way, um, at the age of 65, I don't really know if I was good enough to have had a sustained a career for England because you know if you only if you only play once you, you, you don't really know. I was going to say, why do you think you didn't oh. get any more chances, Alan? <laughs> I, I I I don't. You know, I find it 
difficult to answer that. There was the following year when we went to the West Indies. First of all, in '79, when I played the final test at the Oval, um, that was there was a not an Ashes series in Australia following, and I didn't. I felt that um, they'd already earmarked Wayne Larkins to go on that trip, so I knew I had to do something pretty special. I didn't do it, so I wasn't disappointed not to be going on the Ashes tour. Disappointed that I hadn't done better, but not disappointed to miss out on the tour. The following year, we were going to the West Indies, and I'd got 1,700 runs, I think. I think I was the second highest English run scorer. Uh, Mike Brearley had said I was one of the top two or three players at cook bowling in the country. Um, so I thought I'd given myself every chance of getting picked uh, and didn't. So I was I was very disappointed uh, and actually felt a bit let down at that time. Although, you know, selectors don't owe you anything. But, but then um, in the years after that, I'd, I'd suffered a couple of injuries which had, and, and a bit of a loss of form, which had sort of curtailed my output a bit and perhaps didn't deserve to get another another opportunity then. But I, I, I feel I feel as if I feel a little bit hard done by that you know that I didn't get another opportunity because there were a lot of players, four or five players at the time who sort of kept there was a bit of a revolving thing between three or four players whose whose records are very similar to mine, who kept getting opportunities. But at the end of the day, I suppose you just have to hold your hands up and say that apart from that, that time when I probably ought to have been picked to go to the Caribbean, after that, I probably didn't get enough runs at the right time. One of the things that I found while I was doing some research about you, Alan, I just wanted to ask you about one particular competition that you played in, and it was a Lambert and Butler Floodley competition. It was 1981, and it was seven aside, and it was ten over per side, and it seemed to be played at football grounds. I just wondered what you remembered of that tournament, because yeah. it seemed a very quirky competition to play in. It was a very quirky competition. and um, Now, I'm, well, I don't have many memories of, apart from the fact that I, I think we got into the final but couldn't play. And so the final was played at Tramp Stanford Bridge or something. And Essex took our place. I think this is how it played out. I think we had a quarter final the following day or something. But um, someone told me that I got 125 balls at Solace Park, but I, I, I really have no recollection of it whatsoever because it was just a, a bit of Mickey Mouse fun, really, mm. on very small grounds, as you say. But um, bit of a forerunner of 2020, that's, and possibly the new hundred competition. That, but, um, that's what I thought as well. To be honest, when I, when I looked at it, it, it seemed that we talk about we need a new game, and it seemed that plenty of variations were going back in the 80s and maybe even the 70s. It, it, it was one of those where speaking to you, I had to ask you about it. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it was fun. I, I can remember it being fun because it was just you know. The, the, no one really took it that seriously. You just try to hit the ball into the into the stands as often as possible, which is pretty much what they do in the IPL today. Isn't it? So um, it, it, it was a 
it was a different style of game. And because it, you say it was 10 overs, yeah, I guess it was 10 overs. It, it was over in a flash and just fun. I think, I mean, I think there were reasonable crowds. I think I seem to remember there being a decent crowd when, uh, when we went to Stanford Bridge. But beyond that, I can't remember too much else. I want to fast forward to almost the end of your career and the start of Mark's career that you actually played on opposing sides in 1991. I just wondered, coming from such a cricketing family, how, how was that in the butcher household that you, you, you were coming up against uh, your son? Oh, that, that, yeah, that's obviously a, a great memory. Um, I, mean, I wasn't actually down to play in that game. I, I, I had a knee problem and I was sort of saving it a bit for championship cricket and I, I was going to have a day off on the Sunday but then on the Saturday evening I was having a beer with Ian Gregg who was then the Surrey captain and told me that Mark was going to make his debut the next day and my knee miraculously got better and I decided well I can't, I can't really miss this opportunity. Fortunately I hadn't, you know, we hadn't announced the team for the following day, so I didn't have to. I didn't have to deselect anybody, which I wouldn't, which I wouldn't have done. But I, you know, I, I will save from embarrassment by by not having announced the team. And then, um, yeah, and then he actually he played really well. He because he, he, he came in in a difficult position uh, for Surrey. He came in seven and eight. But he opened the bowling. It's sort of a bit like my career. And he ended up having to hit the last ball of the game for six to win the game, which he failed to do. <laughs> and he told me later he had a plan because he, he was going to step down the wicket to Steve Barwick, who he knew would bowl the Yorker, step down a couple of paces, then step back because he would have pulled his length back and a whack it over my head at long on. As it turned out, he stood still, Steve Barwick bowled a Yorker and it just went in the block hole. And he clucked rather for one. And later I asked him, well, what happened to your plan? And he said, well, you took so long to set the field, I forgot. Tough game, Sonny. <laughs> was, that, was that setting the field gamesmanship or, or were, you, were you trying to second guess where he was going to hit the ball? Uh, well, I think I had a fair idea where he was going to hit it. And I actually put myself there. Not, you know, not, not for any reason. It was just that having set everybody else, I found that I was the... Spare man who had to go down to uh, deep long on, but I was, you know, just one of those things. Making sure you get the field in the right place. I don't, I'm not sure that there was any real uh, attempt at gamesmanship that put him off. But if there, were, if it worked out that way, so be it. 1991 was also uh, quite a good year for you personally, where you were named as one of Wisdom's Creatures of the Year, and. Mike Atherton, Mohamed Azruddin, Desmond Haynes and Mark Waugh were the other cricketers of the year. That must have been giving you quite a good feeling to be named in that company. Yeah, that, that, as you said, that's quite a good company to be in, isn't it, really? So, yeah, I did have a good year and I, and I, and I was playing. And my years at Glamorgan, I, I look back on with real affection because I feel that I did play very, very well during that period. Oh, and I think one of the reasons was when I went down there, I genuinely felt that I was the, the best player. And I think that responsibility gave me a power of good. I think possibly if I look back at Surrey, we had a lot of very good players. And 
maybe subconsciously we we could um, sort of indulge ourselves, knowing that somebody else, you know, if we if we messed it up on any given day, somebody else would come in and sort it out. And and um, it, when I went to Sarah, uh, when I went to Glamorgan, and I knew that the team needed my runs. I think it it, it really did bring the best out of me. Also, the captaincy helped. I think the captaincy brought out the best in me as well, responsibility. And I, I, it's probably for six, seven seasons, or six seasons I was there, probably the most consistent that I've been throughout my career. I'm going to fast forward over your coaching career at Essex, and sorry, purely for time reasons. It's, it's one of those where, Alan, where we could probably double the time and then really talking about that time. And I want to move yep. forward to when you took over as coach of Zimbabwe. Obviously, you, you wrote a book yep. about those experiences. So I think it's safe to say it was quite a, a career-defining moment for you. But when you were offered the job, were there any reservations? I, say, I certainly never had any thoughts of uh, I shouldn't do it or, 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 or anything like that. Because I'd, I'd been... I'd been to Zimbabwe before. I'd been there when it was Rhodesia. I'd been there in 1976 during the sort of height of the the, the independence war, and uh, I knew that I knew that Zimbabwe got a bad press, and that it was sort of very often written in the newspaper. The media here portray it as a as a dangerous place to be, and yes, it can be a dangerous place, but it was more dangerous for um, black Zimbabweans who um, who who who, who um, are sort of being coerced to vote for Zanu PF, vote for the government, and and they're the ones who probably suffer most um, violence or downtrodden the most. Um, and I was very lucky to go there at a time when there was a power-sharing government between Morgan Changarai and, and Robert Mugabe, uh, ZANU-PF and NDC. So there were sort of checks and balances on, on on how the government was run. And so it was a relatively stable period of time. Um, and I, I I really enjoyed it. I, I mean, it was, uh, if, if anyone who's read my book will know that it was frustrating because there was a lot of interference um, and, um, Bad management from the hierarchy, uh, strange selection. It was very difficult to get a coherent selection policy going. Although we, we I did manage it for a period of time, but then the chairman of selectors changed, and I, I had a terrible. I just couldn't get a relation going with this guy at all, and selection became a bit of a lottery. But, but in. In all that, the, the guys I work... Serious Cricket, the UK's number one cricket specialist for personalised team wear, equipment and coaching. Find out more at seriouscricket.co.uk and use promo code POD for 10% off your first order. Hi, I'm Alan Butcher and you're listening to the Cricket People Podcast. Up next is Glenn Pocknell. Glenn has recently been appointed as a coach of the Wellington Firebirds in New Zealand. Having worked under Jamie Siddons and Bruce Edgar at Wellington, Glenn gets his chance now that Edgar has moved on. Glenn's playing career was cut short by injury, and he stayed in cricket with various roles. He has worked his way up at Cricket Wellington, 
whilst boosting his experience with time at Sussex and Cricket Island. Let's hear what he had to say. And today on the podcast, I'm speaking to Glenn Pocknell, who is the coach of the Wellington Firebirds. Hi, Glenn. Hi, how are you? Yeah, good, thank you. My first question really, and I don't really want to take you back where I'm going to anyway, about the, the Cricket World Cup final with, with the Black Caps. And I'm just wondering how that can be leveraged by you for this season, and, and I guess as, as a nation as a whole, because it was in some ways a disappointment in many other ways it was it was it was a victory in everything but name yeah it's really I think um, well I know cricket in New Zealand's really going to benefit from it um, you know in the years to come soon we notice after the, the World Cup that was in New Zealand four years ago a huge upsurge in cricket uh, in terms of youngsters getting into the game and, and this is going to happen again with um, with the success of the Black Caps um, for sure you know I'm just at the Westpac Stadium now where we're based and even during the World Cup and since the World Cup the place is a real buzz with, with kids coming in and you know wanting to hit sixes and um, bowling mates out and things like that so I think it's um, you know huge opportunity for, for New Zealand cricket and, and all the majors to really um, really hone in on the, the youngsters and the next generation of cricketers um, which is yeah, they're, they're going to be the ones that are going to be doing what the, the likes of Jimmy Neesham and Martin Guptill and Trent Bowler are going to be doing in 20 years to come, hopefully. So you're already seeing the positive effects, which which obviously is, is quite encouraging. Um, and I'm, I'm guessing these kind of things have, have got quite a, a long lead time, getting to the final four years ago, obviously getting to the final again now. So but it sounds like you're already seeing that... that Children want, want to get involved with cricket, and and it's and it's inspired you know it's inspiring a new generation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the key for the for the younger ones is the parents as well. You know, the parents are, are watching it. Um, the whole country was watching it and captivated by it. The parents are talking about it, and then the, the kids are hearing, and then the parents want to want to drive their kids to the stadium to have an indoor net, and they they drive a lot of it with the with the youngsters. Um, so you get them on board and. Um, a good chance that the kids um, the kids will follow. So it's a bit of a bit of a partnership really between between both kids and parents. But you know, we're in the middle of winter now, and um, our stadium from from three three o'clock three thirty in the afternoon when school finishes is packed out, and we've got we've got six lanes in there. So from from that time till ten o'clock at night, it's it's chocker, which which is amazing considering it is the middle of winter. Yeah, I mean, I mean, is is it just like a a free for all? Can people just turn up and and have a game, or is there some sort of structure to it, Glenn? Yeah, there's definitely structure. There's, um, you've got a box, so there's there's varying um, varying different levels. You can um, book as an individual. You can book with a private coach. You can come in with your college team or your club team. Um, so there's there's lots of different ways people come in with their parents. Um, but we just it's just done through an online booking system. Um, and so it's, it's all a user pace um, the way. So turning to you, um, and you've recently been appointed as, as coach for for the nineteen twenty season. You, you've been with Wellington for a while, and you've worked your way through. Um, you, so you, a tutelage with with Bruce Edgar, but obviously now Bruce has decided to to move away, and, and and the book stops with you now. So I really wondered. How, how do you see that going this year and where do you think that there are, there are still learning curves for you? I think there's definitely going to be learning curves because it is a, it is a new role for me. Um, 
it's it is a new role, but it's it's uh, very familiar in some respects because I have been an assistant, as you say, to Bruce and prior to that, Jamie Siddons. So I've been in, in that role for six years, so I know the ins and outs of what it entails. So that's given me really good preparation to to know, um, I guess, what to do and, and for me to form my own philosophy in terms of how I'm going to do it. Um, and that, that's it's been great. I've had that had that experience. Um, so I think, yeah, in terms of moving forward, it's about you know, learning from those experiences and putting my own spin on things. And yes, there's going to be challenges along the way, and that's that's the nature of the beast with coaching and, and playing at a professional level. But I think with that experience, I'm really well equipped to, to deal with those challenges. What does a successful first season for you look like, Glenn? What are the things you, you, you're looking to achieve? Yeah, that's a good question. It's something that we, we discuss with our management team. And, um, you know, ultimately, we want to win. Um, you want to win every game of cricket you want to win every single trophy whether that's achievable or not I'm not sure it's, it's a very it's a very high goal um, in the New Zealand domestic competition to, to look to win three trophies nobody's ever done it um, so I guess following on from that it's, it's how you're going to do that um, and to do that you've got to you've got to have your players as best prepared as possible for all the challenges that they're going to face and that's from a skill perspective to a mental perspective to a physical perspective so we're trying to hone in on that process of um, getting them better in those areas and then you know if we do that to the best of our ability we do give ourselves the best chance of um, succeeding on the field um, and uh, I guess the other aspect of it is uh, you know how do I judge success and, and yes winning as I said is a big part of it but probably more importantly for me is seeing players improve and seeing players get better um, and that's very with cricket that's a very easy thing to measure um, because we're very statistical based um, so that's probably a big part for me I want to be in a position where players are going from A to B or, or B to C um, and then ultimately they're, they're getting to a position where they're performing on the world stage like we've just had recently with, with Jimmy Neesham and Tom Brundle in the, in the World Cup for New Zealand Yeah it's, those, those guys I want to really to talk to you about because it must be disruptive in some ways. Uh, it's, it's obviously it's a measure of su- success that you, you've got players on the, on the central contract, but it also means that you don't necessarily get the continuity and 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 those better players obviously disappear. Um, certainly for for periods in the season. So how as a coach do you cope with that, Glenn? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good challenge to have. We're we're pretty proactive. The last couple of years we've been proactive in terms of. Um, are really looking a little bit deeper down into the playing pool um, and we have a very active succession plan where we, we plan for these type of eventualities if we do lose a player you know, in this case you know a keeper in Tom Blunder we've got we've got a couple of guys in our succession plan that are coming through and one of them played a fair bit for us last year in the, in the one day comp Lockie Johns and, and broke the New Zealand domestic record so he's he's been in our system since he was, was 15 and he's been earmarked as a as a potential professional player so we've got some really good systems in place underneath the professional level um, and some great staff driving those structures and driving those coaching initiatives so that certainly helps in terms of our planning for the future if we do get more guys on the central contract list and, and lose them to black caps which which we do we want we want guys um, you know achieving their dreams and and representing the country. So you've got your squad locked down now for for next season. So who are the guys that we maybe 
we've not heard of that we need to be looking out for? Where are the where are the future Black Cap stars? I'd say all of them really. That's why they've all been given contracts. Is we see something in every single one of them. Um, whether they make it or not is a is another story. But we've got a really good mix of youth and experience. We've got some experienced players that have played a lot of cricket. Uh, guys like Jacob Patel, Hamish Bennett, Michael Bracewell, Devin Conway. They've, they've played a lot of cricket, um, both in New Zealand and and international cricket. Some of them. And then we've got a really good, um, I guess, level below or at the bottom where quite inexperienced and young guys like Rachin Rivens, Jacob Buller, who have played for New Zealand 19, Andrew Fletcher, another young guy who had a great um, season last year, Ben Sears is another young youngster. So we've got a, a good balance in that regard. But, you know, we, we want all of these guys to um, give themselves the best chance of playing for the Black Caps. And as I said at the start, we believe that they... They all have the potential to, whether they do or not, is is due in part to um, what they what they do in, in regards to develop, developing the game, and that's where we, we can play a part in helping them do that. When you're pulling the squad together, is it a matter of that those players will go across both red baller and white baller, or do you see that certain players will be predominantly white ball? How, how did you sort of get your squad make-up? It's a it's a bit of a mix, really. We have a um, the contracting system in New Zealand is uh, it's done by a point system, so you get certain points for the various formats. So so some players we we earmark as they're, they're going to play three formats. Um, other players we say, you know, we see them maybe playing a white ball or vice versa. It could just be red ball or two formats. Um, so it's a it's a real jigsaw puzzle as to how you fix. Uh, and put those pieces together because there's a lot of unknowns. You know, you mentioned Jimmy and Tom. Like we've got a we've got a plan for not having them. Uh, we could have them for the bulk of the season. We don't know. We don't know until that happens. So we have to also plug in the areas for I guess guys like that. That if, if we do lose for the, the bulk of the season, then there could be somebody else who's going to be playing you know ninety to hundred percent of the game. So. It's a it's a really tough one. It's 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 a long process to, to go through because um, just basically because of the point system. I wondered if there had been some sort of conscious um, makeup of the squad because most of the successes for Wellington certainly recently have been in white ball and, and Plunkett Shield haven't won it since 2003-04 and I just wondered is is that one of the, the long term goals to to actually be more um, sort of successful in red ball and to be more consistent. Yeah, actually, it's, it's a hard format here as well, just based on, um, you know, it's the hardest format for a reason because it's essentially you're finding out who the best team is over 32 days of cricket. So it's a lot of variables within the competition. Uh, rain's a big one. Sometimes you get lucky with um, out of those 32 days, you don't get rain. And if you don't get rain or matches that are shortened, you get the best possible chance of getting the, the most amount of points. Um, I know they're all uncontrollable and, and external factors, but I, I think for, for us, yes, we want to win it, um, but it's about you know performing day by day and, and session by session. And we got close a couple of, couple of years ago. Um, for us, it's probably more about the style of cricket we want to play. Um, and if we, start, we play the style of cricket we want to play, then all give ourselves the chance of, of um, you know, being up there in, in terms of the, um, the trophy at the end of the season. In 
there any particular areas in Red Bull that, that you're, you're focused on this year, Glenn? Because you know, you've obviously been assistant coach for a while. Uh, are there certain areas that you you want to, to do better? Yeah, every year, ideally. Um, last year, we were probably, we got more betting points than we did bowling points. The year before, we got more bowling points than we did betting points. So, with a very similar squad both, both those years, it's, it's hard to know why why there's a difference there. So I think if we focus on continuous improvement in both of those areas um, and get better in both of those areas, then, then yeah, we give ourselves a, a, a chance. Um, so I think you know for us as a squad and individuals, that's that's been our focus the last couple of years. It's just looking to improve every day as players uh, and as a team, and really looking at performances honestly and reflecting on on how we can do better the next time and then trying to implement that. I wanted to explore a little bit of, of how you got into, into coaching and um, I, I know that you, your career, your playing career was curtailed by injury. When, when that ended, obviously there would be massive disappointment. Was coaching always, that's what I want to do, I want to stay in the game or, or did you explore other avenues? No, it was actually never part of the puzzle at all. I, I always wanted to play either cricket or rugby for New Zealand that was my dream as a as a young uh, kid growing up in New Zealand and, and that dream was, was alive till, till I was 20 and then realised I, I wasn't good enough uh, and then about that time I got into the printing industry uh, and worked in that for a couple of years and, and it was probably that's, that was a similar time when the, the injury happened um, and I went into the cricket loan office at the time this was, this was way back in 2002 um, and my old high school coach was the coaching director and had a conversation with him about you know this was my dream to to play cricket for New Zealand and it, and it hasn't happened and I'm gutted and, and he just asked me a simple question is have you thought about getting into coaching and that was where it all really started and uh, haven't looked back since then so it's it's an interesting way of how I got into coaching but you know I've, I've loved it and it's been a, it's been an amazing journey and will continue to be an amazing journey. Do you feel that you're there now as a coach and it's really about just sort of refining your skills or do you, or do you think that there's, there's still a lot to learn? I think there's a hell of a lot to learn. I think you never, I don't think you can ever nail coaching. It's probably like, like a player. Don't, you can never, you can never quite, you can never quite nail it. There's always something new that you can learn. There's always something new that you can be better at. Um, so for me as a coach, it's you know I'm big on I'm big on that aspect of of learning, um, and that's I expect that from my management staff too and the players is that they're challenging me and they're asking hard questions of me and they're asking me um, what the purposes of certain things that we're doing because we're going to get the best result by that you know we're putting everybody's minds together into one and um, challenging each other and then ultimately from there we're coming out with the best solution so um, you know that's that's what I love about cricket it's it's such a challenging game it's such a mental game there's, there's no right or wrong way to do things there's, there's certainly lots of different philosophies um, and it's about taking little bits and pieces as to what might work for you and, and what, what might work for the team and then um, creating your own little style Now you're part of the latest intake for the Coach Accelerator Program for um, from High Performance Sport New Zealand. I just wonder what your expectations are from that, Glenn. And obviously, people like Gary Stead and Mike Heston have been through that program too. And I just wondered: is there, do you feel the weight of responsibility because it's not just cricket 
people that, that attend attend that um, that program. I just wondered, do you feel you know, that there's a responsibility f for you to do well from it? Uh, I don't think it's a responsibility. I think you know I was very proud to be initially um, accepted into the program. It was probably the most thorough process I've ever been through for any type of interview to get in, to get into a job or whatever it may be. So it was very vigorous and very challenging process and getting through that alone I was I was really proud of myself um, and I think now I'm in the now I'm in the course it's, it's just another great opportunity to learn and, and get challenged and um, you know the only pressure that's there is the pressure that I put on myself um, I, I have very high ambitions I, I do want to coach the Black Cats one day and whether that happens or not I don't know but that's that's my current dream um, my dream 10 years ago was coach, coach Wellington and I'm in that position now, so um, it's a great time to refine that dream and and look look further afield. So if I get there, then I'll have to I'll have to refine it again. I mean, that that was going to be one of one of my questions was about about the Black Caps role about being coach. But as you say, that that that's not on on your on your list of, of things to achieve. How, how far away do you think you are, Glenn? I mean, is is it something that you've not put a time scale on, or or, or do you think that it's you know, it's five years away, ten years away. Yeah, it's it's really hard, I think, to put a time scale on it. Uh, you know, when I first when I first got the assistant coaching role, I believe I was ready to be a head coach. Um, but it, I only know now, looking back, that I wasn't ready to be a, a head coach in terms of an MA. So it's, it's probably it's probably similar to you know being an international coach. I think I could do it now if I if I had that opportunity. Um, but I think there'd be a huge amount of learning and, and probably a lot of mistakes along the way. So I think having having experience as a head coach over an extended period of time will just give me that base um, that when I when I do get a role in an international team, I'm I'm ready and I'm prepared for that challenge that's that's thrown at me. Yeah, similar to what Gary Stead's been through. He was he was with Canterbury, I think, for six years as a head coach, and a really great opportunity to. Um, to build build himself in that role and really get an understanding of what what the role entails, and, and now he's just translated that into the black hats and, and added really. I, I guess my final question, really, is about um, going back to, to the World Cup and seeing Jimmy Nisham how he plays his sport and how he reacts to things on on Twitter. What what's he like to? To coach Glenn, he he must be he must be the best best and the worst to coach at the same time. Oh no, he's he's a lovely guy to me. He's um yeah he, he's he's the life and soul of the party. And, but you know I I can't say enough about him. He's he had a had a full season with us last year at Wellington and and great great man to have involved in the team because he um he does drive people along and he and he and he wants the best out of people uh, and he wants the best out of himself but you know I think the, the key to him and we've seen it uh, in the World Cup is, is just being himself um, and he's been allowed to do that in that environment with the Black Hats which is great because that just gives him the opportunity to, to get the best out of himself and then you, you, you can only see when he's in that position what he's capable of mm -hmm. um, we certainly saw it with us from a domestic point of view last season uh, but it was you know, unbelievably satisfying to see it happen on the world stage. So I think Irv is coaching him. They, they need to they need to be mindful of um, not just him, but any player. You, you've got to you've got to let them do who they are. You can't try and cookie cut people and 
tell them to be some, something else. Well, that sounds like the ideal way to get the best out of people, and I'm, I'm sure for the upcoming season, Glenn, that, that that's going to happen for you guys. Obviously, best of luck to Wellington for this season, and thanks for speaking me t- to me today. No problem. Thanks, Jonathan. So, there is another episode finished. It was good to speak to the two coaches who are at different ends of the coaching spectrum. Alan has been there, done that, and got the T-shirt several times over. Glenn, on the other hand, is about to start coaching at a high level for the first time. What was common in both interviews was the passion that both have. If anything is to go by, Glenn is definitely on the right road to success. Next week's episode features Tino Best and Hugh Turberville. Tino is best known for the Freddie Flintoff sledge and subsequent dismissal. However, there are many layers to Tino, and the interview scratches at a few of them. Being a West Indies quick, in the shadow of the greats, or following his uncle Carlisle in the West Indian team. Tino gives an honest account. Hugh is the managing editor of the Cricketer magazine, and talks about his role and what it's like to work with Simon Hughes. Listen in next week to find out more. Please make sure that you rate, review and subscribe to the podcast in your preferred podcast app. If you have any feedback about the podcast, please contact me via Twitter or via my website. On Twitter, I am at jnorthall and the podcast is at cricket underscore pod. Please give both of those accounts a follow. My website is jonathannorthall.com if you want to email me instead. Thanks for listening. Please go back and check out the earlier episodes if you haven't already and speak to you next time. 